we live in a fall. Ever since Satan tempted humankind to disobey God's command, God's design for the world was disrupted. And so sin and evil and suffering enter the world. But behind the scenes is this great spiritual cosmic battle. The unseen world. We see the physical and mental suffering that all humans experience. And the Bible talks about this type of suffering. Right? We all have challenges. But the kind of suffering that I want to talk about today is what... Peter talks about, and it's the suffering as a result of one's faith in Jesus. One's faith in Jesus and the faithfulness of Jesus. And so the people that we're talking about, like these people in the picture, they're suffering because of their faith in Jesus. Philippians 1.29 says this, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And you find this suffering theme in so many letters of the New Testament, if you read it properly. And so, suffering for Christ should not shock us when it happens. God is saying, if you love me, suffering on this earth is to be expected. That's the reality of it. But persecution is a bit foreign for us Western Christians. That's us here. So this is why we need to talk about this, because it's foreign to us. We in the West are not used to this kind of opposition and persecution that our Christian friends in Africa and Asia and the Middle East face. You know, for many centuries, followers of Jesus in Europe and North America have never faced cultural-wide persecution because of our faith in Jesus. But things are changing. Things are already changing in North America and Europe. And many have written about it. Why are we facing these changes? Um, the late John Stott once said, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. The clash that is happening is between those who believe and trust the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God and then those who don't. But of course, there used to be, you know, you could kind of live separately or coexist together, but slowly we're realizing that these two value systems are in a collision course. So in our passage today, if you want to turn there, we're just going to continue in 1 Peter chapter 3, 17 to 22. So that's 1 Peter chapter 3, 17 to 22. Um, you want to go to the next slide, I think? Okay. All right. So, um, basically, what we find in this passage are words of encouragement from Peter. Words of encouragement for the suffering church. Now, you might not be facing persecution. On the other hand, you may be facing 
persecution. Oops, I'm not sure where that came from. Um, I don't know your situation. Because, like I say, it is starting to happen right here in North America. Um, at the very least, let's learn to pray and appreciate our own brothers and sisters who are suffering in the name of Christ around the world. At least we need to do that. But whatever your situation, let's receive these words of encouragement to empower our faith. So, the first word of encouragement. Number one, persecution can purify your faith. So, I'm taking this from actually 1 Peter chapter 1, 6-7. He says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to uh, had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. A theologian by the name of Jean Edward Weith said this, One of the paradoxes of Christian history is that the church is most pure in times of cultural hostility. You see, the persecution against the church reveals the sincerity and the authenticity of one's faith. When persecution comes, a lot of Christians kind of go by the wayside. It's like fire that burns away impurities and metals. And persecution and suffering burns off hypocrisy and insincerity and it drives those who are sincere to God for real. And so it purifies the church. And God uses this so that we might, you know, so that we might see what we see as injustice and pain, but he uses it to deepen our faith. And so so that's why we look across the globe and we hear the testimonies of those being persecuted. Man, they have dynamic faith. All you have to read is a book um, like The Heavenly Man, Brother Yao, right? Serious, serious persecution. But that guy's on fire. When things are going astray, or going easy, I should say, when the church is experiencing easiness and comfort, it seems to be that that's when the church goes astray and becomes weak. When the church looks identical to the culture or wants to accommodate the culture, adopting its modern values and seems to enjoy earthly success, it could actually be at its weakest, even though from the exterior it may not look that way. When we persevere in suffering, it refines the church and emboldens our faith in Christ. So that's the first encouragement to the suffering church. It actually can refine you and deepen your faith. Next slide, number two. Jesus also faced suffering, but he led us to God. Verse 17 to 18. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good, that's been a large theme, right, in 1 Peter, do good, than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So we are encouraged to persevere. And perseverance means that we continue to do good even though we are going through some kind of suffering and persecution. Continue to do right things in this world rather than succumb to revenge or a temper tantrum or violence. Jesus himself is no stranger to suffering and persecution. You know, suffering, of course, he suffered by the hands of people who wanted to kill him and torture him. And he died at the hands of evil authorities. Jesus stands with a persecuted church. He knows exactly how they feel and how we feel. He knows how the church suffers because he suffers just as they do and will continue to. But the incredible part is this. In God's beautiful sovereignty and in his grace and love, God used this evil against Jesus to bring us to God. It sounds like a paradox. It is a paradox. The righteous, that's Jesus, he suffered and died for the unrighteous. And that's us. We're the unrighteous. That's the world. He suffered and died for the forgiveness of our sins. What was meant for evil to kill him, right? God used it for his glory and for his good and for the benefit of humankind, paving the way for people to return to God. Our suffering for Christ is never a lost cause. It is never in vain, even though the clouds might come. Suffering Jesus for Jesus is never without purpose. Next slide. Next word of encouragement. We actually get to the heart of the passage. Sorry for the small print, but I had to kind of, you know, stuff it all in there. But when Jesus was made alive, in other words, when he resurrected, he announced his judgment against all authorities. Now, this is a passage that I want to read slowly to you. And, I mean, if you could glance at it, I know it's kind of small up there. But, um, and try to focus in here. So this is verses 19 to 22. After being made alive, referring to Jesus, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of the dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now, if this passage is not immediately clear to you, uh, you're not alone. Uh, This is a passage that theologians have wrestled with. Uh, This reminds me kind of of my my recent car project. Cheryl bought me a a stereo for my 
my car for Christmas. And I soon face a challenge. And, you know, I've installed a few stereos in the past, but I've discovered that very few people had any instruction on how to install my particular stereo that was purchased for my particular car. And so I ended up needing to buy, you know, all kinds of pieces. Uh, A stereo harness, wiring harness, uh, what they call an interface, uh, output connectors, and little, you know, and even tools to put the connectors together. And, you know, one day, here's my stuff just scattered all over my desk, right? And there's no clear instructions to how to put it together. Have you ever kind of put a puzzle together without the picture? Well, it's kind of like that, right? He had no idea how to put it together. And so after four months of YouTube searching and calling public product support, multiple attempts and fails, I even burnt out some of the components in my haste, and nearly giving up. Yes, I nearly did. Finally, one day, I had that moment, and I figured it out. Once I understood my mistakes and my errors, and it all came together, it really wasn't so bad. Well, it was bad, but in the end, right? I figured it out. Well, this passage is kind of like this, okay? It overwhelms us because, you know, we see these scattered bits and pieces here. And we know they're supposed to fit together, but we're not sure what goes where and what Peter is trying to say in this passage, okay? So uh, let's go to the next slide here. Okay, so um, let me try to break this passage down for you. Um, in, the first, in this passage, first of all, it talks about, probably the key line, that he made proclamation to the spirits in prison, right? To the imprisoned spirits. And you go, okay, I'm already off there. I have no idea what he's talking about, right? Uh, then he connects these imprisoned spirits to the disobedient during the time of Noah, He goes, whoa, okay. He goes way back to the time of Noah, right? You go, okay, well, not sure about that one then. Then there is this piece about the floodwaters that saved Noah and his family, and yet it somehow points forward to water baptism. You go, okay, that sounds cool, but we're not quite sure how it all connects together. And then finally, Peter says, it's about baptism. It's not so much about, you know, washing dirt off the body, but more about an appeal to God for a good, of a good conscience. So the question is, you look at these four pieces, as I call them, and the question is, how do you fit this all together to make any sense, okay? So, let me do my best to try to fit it all together. First of all, uh, let's remember, I think I have a slide for this. Can you go to the next slide? Okay, is the purpose of the passage. Let's not forget that. What's the purpose? The purpose is to encourage the persecuted church. So these are, in fact... Probably because Peter knows things are going to get worse. Secondly, the focus is on the human authorities, and most importantly, what lies behind human authorities. So, P- 
Peter's already talked about human authorities back in chapter 2. And he's talking about people who wanting to harm them. And, of course, giving them wise counsel not to, you know, exact revenge, etc. Uh, but the passage is speaking about spiritual authorities that stand behind these human authorities in the spiritual realm. And so we know this theme in Ephesians chapter 6, right? Uh, what does Paul says? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? Not against human beings. But then he goes behind these human beings and says, our real battle is against the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil, etc., etc. Okay? So you know, we need to understand that um, both Peter and Paul uh, sneak behind the scenes of human beings and say, hey, guess what? There are menacing, evil authorities that influence and impact our world. So whatever evil that we experience on earth in terms of human authorities, there are unseen spiritual counterparts behind them in the heavenly realms. Okay? So, let's go back to these spirits and these imprisoned spirits. So, we know these spirits are what is behind the scenes, right? These are authorities in the unseen spiritual realm. We know them as fallen angels. We know them as demons. We know that they were cast from heaven onto earth. And so, that as I understand it, is what their imprisonment means, right? They're thrown down. These same spirits of evil lay behind the wickedness of society during Noah's time. So this is what Peter's talking about, okay? He's going to a specific time of Noah because you and I know that during Noah's time, it was an incredibly wicked time, okay? So this is Genesis 6, 1 to 6. Genesis 2 to 4, it speaks about the sons of God, which in that context, to make a complicated discussion easier, is referring to fallen angels and demons who have made their way influencing human people, right? Made their way, it says, into human daughters and had children by them. It sounds really creepy, but all it's really saying is that when Satan and his henchmen influence human beings, these human authorities, right? The offspring became these heroes of men, but not heroes in a really cool sense, but in a very evil sense, okay? They're evil heroes. And so in Genesis 6, 5, it says, the wickedness of Noah's time was so great that the inclination and the thoughts of, hum of the human heart was evil all the time. Right? I mean, that's, that's evil, right? 24-7, these human authorities and their offspring, only thinking evil, only thinking of themselves. And so these sons of God, these evil spiritual authorities, these demons, have completely infiltrated these heroic, right, in terms of earthly sense, human authorities, so that the wickedness of man was evil 24-7. 
Evil, unseen authorities stood behind the evilness of humankind. So this is why Peter takes you back to that time, helping us understand, right, the kind of injustice that Noah and his family felt and faced. You know, we watch on the news or read in the papers or on your phones uh, stories of horrible wickedness sometimes. Uh, maybe we've kind of gotten used to it. Right? I mean, we, we kind of read about it, but you remember just maybe it was a couple weeks ago, innocent children in the States, I forgot which state it was, maybe it was Texas, in a Christian school, they were gunned down by a teenager, right? I mean, this is, this is incredible evil. Bombs set off in a public venue in Boston at the marathon several years ago, killing and injuring hundreds because of a hatred New conflicts today in Syria. And of course, what we mentioned from the top, what you don't read about in the news, right, is the persecution of over 300 million Christians today as we speak. And so Peter is writing to this persecuted church who find themselves not just in the crossfire, but they are the targets of injustice through these evil human authorities. And yes, you should know that Peter, after he penned this letter, sometime later, he was hung upside down and he was martyred. It's reality of that time. It's a reality on the world, in the world, even though us out west don't see it quite yet. So when in speaking of Jesus, Peter says this, and remember, these are actually words of encouragement. He came and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So, how is this an encouragement? Okay? Just a clarification, Peter is not talking about proclamation in the sense of evangelism, okay? That's been often misunderstood. He's not talking about sharing your faith or something like this. Rather, these are words of judgment against these imprisoned spirits, these fallen angels, as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. The same language of proclaiming to the imprisoned spirits was also found in a well-known book called First Enoch. And sometimes we like to look at, you know, books or documents that were actually written about the same time as Peter. And you can, you know, you can find some real gold there. But this book was treasured by people for God to do his act of liberation. And it wasn't written by Enoch, because, you know, of course, Enoch was a character way back in Genesis 5, right? During that time of great evil. And so you can understand that, that someone decided to write a book and, use, and to use Enoch and make it sound like Enoch for a desire for God to execute justice, right? So it was written as though he was speaking it. 
And, and the book traces the problems of evil right back to the time of the wicked angels of Genesis chapter 6, the same spirits of disobedience during the time of Noah. And in this book, in First Enoch, it celebrates the victory that God has won over these spiritual beings using the exact same phrase, God made proclamation to these imprisoned spirits. So what's Peter trying to do here? Peter is saying that the victory over these imprisoned spirits, these dark forces of evil, have been won or defeated through Christ's resurrection and through his death. It is a defining, definitive moment and announcement that these evil spirits have indeed been condemned and judged and their day of reckoning is going to come. Okay, And so the church going through persecution needs to hear these words. Your enemy was actually defeated at the cross. Your enemy was defeated when Jesus became alive. Alive from death. Their power is broken and Christ is the true Messiah. He is the sovereign Lord of the earth. Colossians 2.15 says this. It echoes the same truth. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's definitive stuff. Now we're ready to talk about the final piece, about Noah's Ark, and he goes on to talk about baptism. Uh, when you go to the next slide, I kind of forget what's coming up here. Uh, next slide. Okay. So, 1 Peter 3.20 says, In it, that's the Ark, only a few people, eight in all, we're saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscious conscience toward God. So the question is, um, why does Peter refer to Noah and the ark story and the flood story at this point? Well, an interesting little tidbit here. According to historian and theologian Tom Wright, um, actually during that time, during Peter's day, um, there was a popular belief that Noah's Ark had come to rest in ancient Turkey on a mountain in their region. Okay, So uh, Peter's writing to people in Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey, so the same area. And so his hunch is that Peter is appealing to this well-known story well-known to both Jews and pagans. And because the story involved eight people being rescued through this great flood, it became an obvious image for baptism, which we know in Romans 6 is seen as a means of dying and rising with Christ. So even though they faced this devastating flood, which was an act of judgment, right? against evil and mankind, here in this story of judgment, we hear the story of Noah, who obeyed God. He trusted him. 
It's like he surrendered himself to the promises of God. And God used this faith-building experience and put him in the ark. And in spite of this judgment, these people are saved, right? So in that sense, the floodwaters of baptism has become a symbol of God's saving action of those who trust him. It's not that complicated, right? Those who trust him. Even in this horrible sense of judgment, God saves those who trusted in the promises of God. So um, June 4th, we're going to have a baptism. And maybe this is a good time for me to talk about it just a little bit to do a little uh, teaching on it. Um, as Peter suggests, do I have another slide? Sorry. Yeah. Um, Peter suggests those being baptized are not taking a bath, okay? I mean, there is a cleansing theme, of course, but Peter is not talking about that so much. That's not his focus. And it's not about, he says, taking a bath, about taking, you know, the dirt off. Although I highly recommend you take a bath now and again. That's, that's a good thing. And use soap, too. Hello? Okay. Anyway, all right. Um, what's going on, you know, in this act of being baptized? Those being baptized are fully identifying themselves with the suffering Jesus. Okay? Here's a suffering thing. They are identifying with the suffering Jesus as when they're lowered down into the water. It's a symbol, of course. They're identifying with the suffering Christ. I mean, that's, that's, that's very helpful for the suffering church. It's helpful for any of us, even though we may not suffer, but sometimes you do. But he saves you by his very suffering and death, and then his resurrection. And then Peter says, water baptism is a pledge, or it's an appeal of a clear conscience toward God. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the baptismal candidate is declaring that they are choosing to live for Jesus and his teaching through the grace of God for the rest of their life, right? They are making an appeal, which is another word to mean, I promise to commit myself to Jesus for the rest of my life. They're making a bold statement, right? They're standing in the waters of baptism and says, I have my eyes set on Jesus for the rest of my life. It's not about me. It's not about the world. It's all about Jesus. And they do that. These Christians did that back in Peter's day, knowing that they're going to suffer and some of them are going to die. They didn't care, right? So much, it's much about counting the cost. Do you know what it costs to follow Jesus? I wonder if us people, Christians out west, really understand. People in Africa and Asia, they get it. 
they could be shot down because they said this statement in front of the world. I choose to follow Jesus. So when people are baptized, they are showing that their old way of life is dead. I will die to my days of worshiping the emperor. Mm. That could mean their life, actually. They are declaring they no longer accept the control of sin in their lives. doesn't mean they become perfect. It means they're going to start on this trajectory. I'm going to, by God's grace and his power, help me defeat sin in my life. And they're going to surrender to God's authority and all the resources that he gives us. And by the way, he gives you everything you need for godliness. That's what Peter says, right? That's a wonderful gift. And they are promising themselves to God for the rest of their lives. And they're fully identifying themselves with Jesus, the suffering Jesus that died in resurrection and what he stands for. So it's this powerful symbol. It's a powerful service, right? And as Peter says in verse 21, this is only possible, made possible, through the resurrection of Jesus. Or as Peter says, when he was made alive, he made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, right? in that definitive moment of Jesus' resurrection, and he was raised to life, and he ascends into heaven, he's making this declaration that you demons and Satan are doomed. These are my children now who follow me, and I will protect them. This is why it is a word of incredible encouragement. Because Christ promises to guard us from the evil one. And he promises one day Satan and his henchmen will be destroyed. That that's basically sums up the message of Revelation, by the way. It's not a timeline of, of events. It's a promise that in Jesus, Satan will be defeated and Jesus will come and create a new heavens and a new earth to those who trust him. So Peter ends off the section on baptism by saying in verses 21b uh, to 22, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and, it is at, and he is at God's right hands. And listen to this last part. With angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So he's basically come full circle, right? I resurrected. I announced my proclamation that I will judge, judge the evil authorities. And then he is on the right, God's, right hand, God's right hand. And who is subject to him? These same, right, demons and authorities. They are doomed. I get the picture of David as a young boy who slew Goliath with a single stone. Then he takes Goliath's own sword and hacks off his head. It wasn't so much David. It was about the power of God through David. This is the image I get when Jesus is on his throne. He says, look, don't you be afraid of your enemy because God understands suffering 
He understands death. And by the way, he's no longer dead. He's alive. He's reigning. He has complete authority over all this evil that is happening in the world. The suffering church needs to hear that again and again and again because all the news and all the images and all the pictures are so negative, right? But the reality is we serve a living Jesus who has defeated evil and one day it's all going to get wrapped up. Well, it's communion today, and uh, I'm just going to uh, go right into it without a song, because I want to continue with the same theme. But I want to first read the lyrics of a song, um, Victory in Jesus. Most of you, you know, my generation, you know that song, right? Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me, mere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing blood. You know, when I was in Bible college, we used to have chapel every day. And uh, uh, back in the days at Briarcrest, there was probably 750 students. It was kind of the heyday of Bible college, of the Bible college movement. But, you know, we met in this chapel, and with the staff and the students, you know, we probably had over um, 850 people stuffed into this old wooden building, you know. And I remember singing this song, and the volume, I mean, we were just, the the roof was getting blown off the chapel because this is one of our favorite songs, right? It was such a victorious song for God's people to sing. And this is the theme of 1 Peter chapter 3 at the end here. It's the victory of Jesus over all that is evil, even though it may not look like it. This victory is not victory for Jesus, but victory in Jesus, according to the hymn. Because it was not Jesus who needed to find victory because he had no sin. Jesus didn't have a problem. We're the ones who have a problem. Jesus was not powerless against sin, death, and Satan. We were the ones who were powerless and needed to be rescued, right? Just like Noah. But God loved the world so much, he gave his one and only son to accomplish what we could not do. What, we, what couldn't we do? We couldn't conquer sin. We couldn't conquer evil. We couldn't conquer Satan. We couldn't restore our relationship with God ourselves. Impossible. But we can be victorious in Jesus because the victory was won for us. He did it. And so when we gather around the communion table, we reflect on what it means to us personally, but also as a body. That's why we come together. And so today you could say that as we go around the communion table, we are celebrating his glorious death and resurrection. Peter said, I repeat myself, he was made alive and he announced the victory over sin and death and Satan. All the principalities and the powers. 
So let's remember that as we get around the table. And one day when Jesus returns, he will finish what he began on the cross and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is our good shepherd. He is our king, our priest, our God, and our savior. At the communion table, we recognize that this victory for us was not free. It cost Jesus his life. But he willingly chose to suffer unspeakable, unimaginable persecution and torture and humiliation and ultimately death. And so when you pick up this little cup, it represents his blood that was spilt, innocent blood poured out for your redemption and my redemption. And we remember his blood poured out with this cup. And remember his broken body every time we pick up, pick up that piece of bread and remember that he was battered and bruised and broken and died for your salvation from sin and evil and Satan. We do this and we proclaim his death and we proclaim our victory in Jesus. So I'm going to invite the worship team and uh, they'll play as we come forward, but uh, let me just have a word of prayer and then I'll invite you to come. Lord, I know that um, a lot of words were spoken and uh, we can only process probably a little piece of it. But as we come to your table, may we come as those who celebrate, celebrate a victory accomplished through you when you suffered and died and resurrected. And so may we come in love, but also may we come in holy fear that this salvation, this faith is nothing to trifle about. Because as Peter says, it leads to a pure conscience of a decision to follow you for the rest of our life, even though we face suffering. But may we be encouraged as we come forward, knowing that you have defeated evil, helping us to conquer sin within our own life, and that even you've taken care of our enemies, and especially Satan. And so may we come in gratefulness and celebration and in humility. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I invite you to come, um, if this is new to you. But if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, um, you are welcome to the Lord's table, all because of his grace. Maybe you are struggling with sin in your life. And I want you to know that this is a perfect opportunity to say, Lord, I am sorry. I repent of my sins because 
This table represents his wonderful forgiveness. He wants to free you from that sin, okay? So come forward now, and let's worship the Lord together at the communion table. stand and sing nice and loudly and we'll see if we can blow the roof off our church too we're going to sing victory in Jesus I don't know if I 
told Joel that. So victory in Jesus. I don't know if you can put it up there, but... So if you didn't bring anything, or no, you're very welcome to stay. I'm sure we have lots of food. So uh, please join us for that. Uh, I'm just going to pray. We'll bless that. Father, we do thank you for the victory that we have in you. It's your victory and we walk in it. It's so amazing how that works, Lord. We thank you for your precious blood and for your life. And that you have risen from the dead. 